This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. When people find out that they have a serious illness, they often think of doing whatever it takes to prolong their lives. But the very methods of prolonging life sometimes mean pain and suffering. This was the issue that our next guest, Dr. Sunita Puri, struggled with as she was entering the medical field. She's the daughter of an immigrant workaholic physician who wanted her to follow in their footsteps. During her training, she was drawn to the idea of bridging medical care for devastating diseases with providing comfort and relief for the patient. So she ended up in palliative care. Her new book looks at her own journey to this area of medicine and examines how the field is evolving as people look to quality of life over quantity of time. The book is titled That Good Night, Life and Medicine in the 11th Hour. Dr. Sunita Puri is the Medical Director of Palliative Care and Support Care Services at Keck Hospital and the Norris Cancer Center at the University of Southern California. Dr. Puri, great to have you with us today. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. So do you think we have uh, the proper understanding, and I'm referring to the public, uh, about the treatment that is actually going on in terms of palliative care? I think there's a lot of misconceptions and misunderstandings about what palliative care is. Um, and, and that's both in the general public, but it's also within the profession of medicine. So palliative care is a special type of medical care that focuses on seeing and treating the many sorts of suffering that patients and families have when they're facing a serious illness. And the types of suffering we treat are physical symptoms that come either from the disease or, as you mentioned earlier, the treatment of the disease that can cause pain and suffering. The emotional and spiritual aspects of suffering are also things that we really try to help patients with because all of these domains of suffering are very much intertwined when somebody is facing a serious illness or the end of their life. So that's what palliative medicine really focuses on. It bears mentioning that it's distinct from hospice care, which is a sort of palliative medicine for patients that are in the last six months of life, whereas palliative care can be available to patients at any age and any stage of their disease process. Your decision uh, to go into this part uh, of the medical industry, we talked about it in the open a little bit, but take us deeper into into really the decision that you made to to follow this type of specialty. Well, I, you know, I'd grown up with the model of a physician was my mother. And she was she is this incredible anesthesiologist who, although her skill set is quite technical, Um, and dependent on technologies and medicines, she really has a very humanistic approach to how she sees her patients as whole human beings and even prays with them if they want before going to the operating room. And when I was in my training, I felt that much of what I was doing was just the technical and not the humanistic. And when I did my palliative care elective, I chose to spend two weeks on the service. It wasn't required when I was in my last year of medical school, that was the time where I really felt like I was, I could be both technical in treating symptoms and humanistic in seeing the whole person. And it was also a time where I was acquiring a certain language to be able to speak very honestly with patients and families about what the reality of their illness was and to ask them with that new understanding 
what they wanted for themselves and what they valued the most in the time they had left so that I could use my skills to help make that time meaningful. And that wasn't something that I knew how to do in my training. And it was profound. It was such a profound few weeks where I really started to feel like the doctor I'd imagined myself being. But I was doing the very, and confronting the very thing that medicine seeks to erase or fight at all costs, and that's death. How much in the process of, of, of learning and, and doing this have your communication skills been, been really challenged and tested in working with patients? They've definitely been tested. And I think of, you know, when we're in situations with families that are very high stakes and they're facing the end of their own lives or the life of their loved one, and they haven't had conversations about when that might come and how it might look like, I think the moment of crisis is that much more consequential because we delay conversations about these issues until we're staring it in the face. And I think with part of the limits of communication or the challenge of it is the struggle to find compassion no matter where someone or their family is in their journey with illness. And I think, you know, I really think of communication as our oldest tool in medicine well before the machines and the medicines and the other technologies we have. And so coming back to my words and listening really deeply to how what patients are saying to me about what they want for themselves, that's something that's not intuit that wasn't intuitive for me until I really started doing palliative care every day. And even after my training, I've had to learn on my own different ways to talk to families that might have a totally different set of expectations of what medicine can do for them than it can realistically do. And to really try to meet them where they are, but try to bring them to a different understanding of their new reality. And that requires deep listening, reflection on what they're saying, and trying to help bridge them to the understanding that we as the doctors may have about the reality of the situation. But is, a, mm-hmm. ahead, I was going to say, is there even a distinction in, in delivering those messages? Uh, is there a, a difference between how you deliver that, those messages to family members in comparison to the patient himself or herself? Sometimes it, there can be because I've been in situations, and I write about this in the book a bit, where I might have a patient who is very willing to face and talk about the end of their life, but their family doesn't want them to right? because they think that facing it will make the patient die sooner. I've been in the reverse as well where the family wants to talk about it and the patient refuses to. And I've been in scenarios where the patient and family are willing to talk about it, but the doctor isn't. So you see all of these different permutations in in my practice that really come get solving the issues really come down to meeting people where they are with compassion, but also really using your words in an exact, precise, and kind manner to get everybody on the same page. And what I have seen is that when we actually talk about the thing that's scariest to us, which is things like death and loss of dignity and suffering. The more when we bring it out into the open and into the light, sometimes it's a relief for people to just hear that this is where they are in their disease process. 
And they didn't have a choice in getting as sick as they did, but they might have a choice in how they spend the rest of their days. But we can only give them that choice if we tell them the truth about where they are. How do you think then the 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 move forward of palliative care and the impact that it is having in the medical industry is affecting other parts of the medical industry because there has been that conversation out there about how at times, you know, the, the, the conversations that you may have a doctor when you go to an ER are not as inclusive as you probably would like. They're not as, ex- as extensive as you would like because the time element is such a challenge for that particular, uh, that particular physician. Yes, I think the the way that our system constrains our practice as doctors quite often around the issue of time makes it very difficult for my colleagues yeah. and sometimes for me to have these sorts of conversations. If you think about the ER, as you mentioned, or a very busy oncology clinic where you're seeing 15 patients in a half day, having space and time for these discussions is a real investment that many of my colleagues tell me that they feel unprepared to do because of lack of training, but that is compounded by the lack of time. And so I think the solution here may be twofold, where one, education about how to have these discussions is started from the beginning of medical school, right alongside everything that we learn that we need to know factually and technically. Um, And I think also the earlier we start these conversations with our patients and normalize the fact that these conversations will be part of every of clinic visits when appropriate, the the less time intensive, the really difficult discussions might be because we've already been leading up to them. So I think there is a way to make it work. but it is something that will require changes in training in, and in the system. Dr. Sunita Puri is our guest. She is the author of the book, That Good Night, Life and Medicine in the 11th Hour. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio132 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. I would also like to ask you about the the... the the business side of some of these decisions as well, because in many cases, the people that we're talking about may be on Medicare already. And obviously there is a large discussion going on right now around the cost of health care and, and, and how Medicare plays into this. Certainly. So the economics of health care, especially in the last few months of life, are absolutely something that have gotten a lot of attention. Um, And I think there are some folks look to palliative care to help with cost savings. And it's a very uncomfortable topic, I think, in our field. When I see a patient, I'm not thinking about any of that. That that is truly not my concern. Right. But what we have seen is that when when we talk with patients about the reality of their disease and all options available to them, sometimes people don't want the most expensive options or they feel like the most expensive options like the next round of chemotherapy or more days in the ICU, which are a cost to the system, are also a cost to them as a human being, that it would take time or quality of their life away from them when both time and quality of time are precious. So one of the side effects, you could say, of palliative care consultations can be that people 
do the system does save money. However, that is absolutely not the reason why we do these consultations. And it's something that I have to remind others that might work in the hospital that, sure, you know, I'm glad you think our service can provide some benefit to the sustainability of the system. But I want to remind you that my primary concern is always the patient and the family. And if they make decisions that result in a more expensive option, my role is to support them and to make sure that I walk with them on that journey um, to the next transition point. We're joined by Dr. Sunita Puri, the author of the book, That Good Night, Life and Medicine in the 11th Hour. Your comments and questions welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you can't make it to your phone, you can send us a comment on Twitter at BizRadio, B-I-Z Radio 132. Or you can use my Twitter account, which is at Dan Loney, L-O-N-E-Y 21. One of the other areas that that you discuss, and I would imagine it is a, a... a significant challenge is that with every different patient that you may see, uh, it may also be a different situation in terms of their spirituality. So how do you how do you end up dealing with 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 those parts of the story? I think spirituality is a huge and actually hugely satisfying thing to talk about with my patients. Um, and I will always ask them if they have a spiritual or a faith practice. And sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. And I would say even if people do not, they have a sense of their place in the world. Sometimes people talk to me about their relationship with nature, for example, and the unity that they feel in that realm. And I think spirituality and faith are all about finding a sense of unity and purpose. And it's a different vocabulary in which people talk about the meaning of their life. Um, And so when I ask them about these things, I'm asking about what may help them to cope with what's going on, what may help them to give them a better understanding of what's going on for them. And sometimes in the very high stakes discussions about, for example, whether or not CPR or resuscitation efforts would make sense for them if their heart stopped, I have heard people talk about the moment of death as, as God's call. And I'll never forget, and I write about this in the book, when I saw a doctor use that phrase for the first time when she was mirroring the language of a deeply devout Catholic family. And just to, to when you listen deeply, and people are using that vocabulary, and that's the way they understand medically what's going on for them or someone they love, right. she talks to them in the terms that make sense for them, can help them make the right decisions, because you're helping them to understand the situation in the way, in the language that they use. And I, and I still use that phrase because I'm very comfortable using it, and not all physicians might be, but I use that, and there's always a shift in the conversation when I talk about the moment of death as God's call, rather than the moment of death as something medical or physiologic, something sacred, really, rather than medical. How how do you deal with all of these particular issues? And I would think that at a a time, even with having written this book and and been able to to think deeply about many of these situations, it still ends up being quite a challenge at times. So, yes, you know, the gravity of the work that I do, I mean, it's a a true privilege, but there is a gravity about it. 
Um, and so in order for me to make sense of what I see and to take care of myself, which I think is really paramount, I have my own spiritual practice, which helps me to make sense of the suffering I see and my place in witnessing it and helping people to endure it um, and giving gratitude for the fact that I can play that role. Um, I also watch a lot of comedy on YouTube, which makes me laugh. And I'm, I am a huge fan of Colbert and Russell Peters and, yeah. you know, all these folks that have this tremendously observant sense of the world and can make fun of it. Um, and I, I have a wonderful network of friends and family and a, and a palliative care team that's very supportive. And I think all of those things help. Um yeah, but I think it is an ongoing challenge for sure. So what's the old line? Laughter makes the heart uh, do good. Is is that basically? A, I think that's the, a version of the old line. But laughter is a, is a great medicine for for all kinds of different people. Not obviously in your particular situation, but when you have the time to to take uh, some free time. Absolutely, I think it is a hugely important form of medicine. I mean, there's even. In India, there's a practice of laughter yoga where people get together and they just laugh. Yeah. And it raises your energy. It improves your outlook on the world. So I'm a huge fan of comedy. Yeah. Most people think that's crazy when they meet me because they think that I must be depressed all the time given yeah. my work. But actually, I think you need a sense of humor to do this work well. 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment on Twitter at bizradio 132 or my Twitter account, at DanLoney21. On the phones in Bridgeport, Connecticut, Tom is on the line. Tom, go ahead. Thank you. Enjoying the conversation and uh, a, a great advocate for the palliative protocol. Um, you know, we need to have a discussion, and everyone's afraid to have that discussion when it comes to end-of-life care. And all I can talk about is my own personal experience in my mother's end-of-life care, that she many, many years ago, gave us her advanced directives, and she was so smart that she kept her advanced directives in her glove box of her car in case something happened. Wow. But it just, uh, in talking about laughter, uh, it, it, by everyone being on the same page as a family unit to have this discussion so there doesn't become the disruption within a family unit, it enabled me with my sister, who's a nun, and I'm agnostic <laughs> when it comes to religion, but it enabled us to have good grief, which is very important uh-huh. to the previous caller's point. Sunita, so, yes. your comments? Absolutely. So thank you so much for sharing your experience. And I think the importance of advanced care planning, which is, as you said, having an advanced directive, a document where you can fill out who you want to be your medical decision maker if you can't talk to your doctors yourself, and what sort of preferences you would have for the intensity of care at the end of your life. I think filling out those documents, and as your mother so wisely did, keeping them in a place where they're accessible is extremely important. And again, it filling out an advanced directive is really having a conversation with someone you love about what you would want for yourself so that that person in the event of an emergency doesn't have to do the guesswork. Because part of what I see every day is that families buckle under the weight 
of needing to make decisions for someone they love when they don't always have a clear sense of what their loved one would want. So hugely important point. Thank you, Tom. Well, and, and, uh, you know, not, Tom, that it sounds like this occurred in your instance, and thank you for the call, but, uh, Sunita, I would imagine that you have run across in, in your time uh, instances where you would have a brother and a sister or brother and brother who disagree on on what the path should be in terms of the care of that loved one. And so having that that documentation in place hopefully eases a lot of those questions. It, it surely does. I One of the situations I write about in the book is about a young woman who was on life support and her fiance and her family, her mother and her sister, were at odds about what to do next. And it's, these are high stakes, stressful situations, and the patient's not always able to participate in that discussion because they're critically ill. Mm-hmm. So having that document is at least an important starting point. I will say that in the real world, sometimes even the best documentation doesn't get the patient everything they want because we have to use their written wishes in the context of what they're going through. Right. And we can't expect them to have told us what they would want in every imaginable situation. However, the documents are important because they force a conversation between the patient and their family or their other surrogates. And it also is at least a place for us to begin. It's the only voice of the patient, the only true, clear voice that we might have in making these high-stakes situations. I would imagine then, and given the example that you just laid out, that this is something that a lot of people need to think a lot earlier in life than probably they do. And maybe it is something that, to a degree, we have conversations on this show about uh, about you know setting up your retirement fund and making sure you maximize that as soon as you can when you are employed. This is something that, realistically, a lot of people may need to think about in their 20s because – as you said, a young woman who ends up in the hospital uh, or is in an accident and cannot make decisions for herself in her 20s, that can be an, a vital document for the parents. Absolutely. And unfortunately, I have seen my share of situations where the person who is dying is the child of parents. And that's an added layer of devastation when we turn to the parents to say, what should we do next for your child? Because it, that, that sort of grief is unimaginable for me and for many others. It's not the natural order of things. And so I agree that even when we're in our 20s, 30s, 40s, we don't know what's coming around the corner. And so having those discussions and documenting what we might want, knowing that we can always change what we write down. What you write in an advanced directive can absolutely be changed and re-notarized as time goes on. So you're not locked into what you might write down for yourself when you're younger. But having that discussion and thinking about your values and your goals, what sort of dignity you would value, what sort of quality of life you would value. These are things we should all think about, in part because it will help us plan for hard scenarios, but in part also because it will help us to appreciate this very precious gift of being alive and living the most fully we can. Have about a minute left. How do you think then, as we move forward, the impact of palliative care is going to improve, hopefully, the uh, medicine as we move forward? 
I think the principles of palliative care with our focus on quality of life and symptom management and having these nuanced discussions, those are things that can change the way we practice medicine if the profession of medicine will be open to it. I think palliative care gives us hugely important language to discuss the sorts of things that we don't talk about when we're in our training. And these are the sorts of things that harm patients when we don't talk about them. And they harm us when we're awake at night, not sure how to tell someone the hardest thing that they're ever going to have to hear. I think good communication is a form of harm reduction. And I think if palliative care is given more attention and influence, all of medicine can become more like palliative care in those very important ways that we attend to length of life, but also its quality. And we have the language and the compassion to acknowledge when dying is beginning and to talk about it openly to spare people unnecessary suffering. Great having you on the show, uh, Dr. Puri. Thank you for your time and all the best with the book and your work. Thank you so much. It's been great. Thank you. Sunita Puri, That Good Night, Life and Medicine in the 11th Hour is the book. It is available in bookstores and online for your purchase right now. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. 